Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 is where we will be today. In nature, if uh, water is hot, it has useful purposes. It can heal, it can regenerate the body. If it's cold, it's refreshing. It soothes, it can help quench a thirst. But if it's lukewarm, water can get stagnant. Stagnant water collects bacteria, it serves no purpose. Right here, I've got a a cup of of hot coffee. It's in this Yeti mug, which makes it incredible because it stays hot for hours on end. My wife will tell you, if I go to Starbucks, I always get my drinks extra hot because it's so frustrating when I'm halfway through my drink and it's lukewarm. I want a drink that that stays hot. And then I've got a a cup of ice-cold water. And you know how refreshing a cup of of ice-cold water is, especially if you've spent all day working outside, you've been doing some yard work, or or, or maybe you've just got done working out, you've gone for a run, and you just quench, you you thirst for that that ice-cold water. So something that's lukewarm is is something that that has, we, we talk about temperature, but lukewarm also has connotations in our culture of meaning lacking conviction or enthusiasm. Uh, Lukewarm is is a form of indifference. We know that biologically speaking, lukewarm means mildly warm, tepid. We might say room temperature. Being lukewarm is playing the middle ground. A cup of cold water can be refreshing. A hot tub can be soothing, but, but lukewarm serves no purpose. Over the last several weeks, we've been going through a series where we've been looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. We've been looking at what Jesus has been saying to them and in turn examining what Jesus has been teaching us as a church at Bachelor Creek. In this final letter, God teaches the church to hold on to their passion for Christ. This is the test of purpose. If I'm going to be passionate for Christ, then it needs to be evident by how I live. But first, let's look at the church that Jesus addresses. In this case, it's the church in the city of Laodicea. What was unique about this church? What was special about this city? Well, first off, we need to understand that Laodicea had a water problem. No other city in the region was as externally dependent on water supplies than Laodicea. Now, it was located right by the Lycus River, so you think that wouldn't be an issue, but but this river was dirty, muddy, polluted. It was unsuitable for drinking. Geographically, Laodicea sat between two other cities. Hierapolis was located six miles to the north, and Colossae, that may sound familiar, it lay nine miles southeast. So it was sandwiched between these two cities. Uh, The church at Laodicea had a connection with the church in Colossae. We know that the Apostle Paul sent a letter to Laodicea because he told the church in Colossae to exchange letters with the church in Laodicea. So the water in Laodicea had to be piped in through aqueducts. Uh, Hierapolis is the modern-day city Pamukkale. It's in Turkey, and it was known for its hot springs. It still is to this day. People back then and today would flock all over to be able to to bathe, to sit in these hot springs, which were known for their medical value. Colossae sat at the base of the snow-covered Mount Cadmus. So the source of the water in Colossae was was ice cold. 
So archaeologists have discovered aqueducts that Laodicea received their water from, coming from Hierapolis and Colossae. By the time the, the hot spring water reached Laodicea, it had traveled six miles from Hierapolis. That water had cooled down significantly. Likewise, the cold water that, that came in from Colossae, as it traveled to Laodicea, began to warm up. The result was that Laodicea's water was lukewarm, stagnant, and poor tasting. Laodicea was also known for its medical center. Two of the greatest practicing physicians in the Roman Empire had their offices in Laodicea. So this city was kind of like the Mayo Clinic of its day. But more importantly, Laodicea was a very rich city. Because trade routes were established in the area, Laodicea was perfectly, was, was perfectly in a position to take advantage financially. They had the main routes, north to south and east, of, east to west, running through their city. So it was a city of, of commerce. As a result, the city was very wealthy. In fact, in the year 2 BC, the city suffered an enormous earthquake. But they didn't need to request aid from the Roman government to finance the restoration. No, they had enough money to rebuild and repair the city themselves. But no matter how prosperous and rich and seemingly useful the city appeared, the city was actually useless. And more tragically, their church was useless. Like its water supply, which was neither hot like the healing springs of nearby Hierapolis, nor cold like the refreshing waters from Colossae, Jesus calls the church at Laodicea lukewarm. Lukewarm stuff tastes terrible. Most people do not like lukewarm coffee or lukewarm tea. Either the coffee needs to be hot or the tea ice cold. Something that's lukewarm serves little to no purpose. Now, I've always heard preachers interpret this passage by saying, you need to be hot for Jesus. Your faith needs to be red hot. Cold faith is just as useless as lukewarm faith. But the way that Jesus speaks about lukewarmness here is about it being useless. He says, I wish you would be hot or cold. He's saying that the church in Laodicea became ineffective. They were no longer reaching people for Christ. They stopped sharing the message of Jesus with others, and they became useless. Lukewarm food does another thing. When you place something lukewarm by your body, it causes your body to relax. Your body starts to relax, and, and you don't want to do anything. That's why often you'll get hot therapy or, or cold therapy, because hot objects and, and cold objects make us respond. Either we feel burned or we, we shiver. But when something lukewarm is placed on the body, it relaxes us. It soothes us. It makes us tired. So it's the same with our witness for Christ. When we are lukewarm, we become tired. We don't want to let others know about Jesus or about what God's been doing in our lives. And this is what Jesus warned the church in, in Laodicea. He was talking to them about being lukewarm. Have you ever heard of the term genericide? Genericide happens when a product becomes so common that the name becomes synonymous with the cheap generic version of the original. 
Let me give you an example. Let's say you go to a restaurant or you go to a house in the South and you ask for a Coke. The waitress is going to ask you what kind. Coke refers to to any dark-colored carbonated beverage, whether it belongs to the Coca-Cola company or not. The same thing is true with Kleenex, right? You'll ask somebody, can you hand me a Kleenex? It doesn't matter if it's that brand. It doesn't matter if on the box it says Walmart great value facial tissue. A Kleenex refers to to anything that you use to, to clean your nose. A brand name that once referred to a specific product is now used for any old generic reproduction, genericide. And I believe the same thing has happened to Christianity. See, originally, to be a Christian meant to be someone who is a genuine believer, somebody who is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, someone whose life has been unmistakably and radically transformed by the life and death of Jesus and by the indwelling presence of his Spirit. But today, and I'm pretty sure the same thing happened in Laodicea, the word Christian is used to refer to anybody who shows up to church once a year. Anyone who claims some form, some sort of of generic religion that's loosely related to Jesus. I wonder how many people in our country claim to be a Christian who have no concept of what that really means. Have no clue the life that Jesus expects from those who claim his name. And what we learn from this letter is for Jesus, there is nothing more disgusting than a half-hearted person who says they're a Christian but doesn't truly follow him at all. And I say that because of what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. The message paraphrase puts it this way. You're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. Jesus could not be any more blunt. The church at Laodicea is the only church of the seven in Revelation where Jesus has nothing good to say at all. Not one thing. That is how sickening stagnant living and stagnant faith is to Jesus. And the reality is, some churches have become spiritually stagnant. Some Christians have grown spiritually stagnant. And maybe that describes you today. You say, how do I know that I become spiritually stagnant, or maybe more importantly, how do I overcome this condition? Jesus shares with us five ways that we can overcome this condition. First of all, you need to see the truth about yourself. You, you need to see the reality of the situation and see the truth for yourself. This is what Jesus writes in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says that he wants you to see the truth about yourself. But in order to do that, you first have to see the truth about Jesus. Jesus makes three statements about himself in these verses. Each of these titles show us who Jesus is and how he's able to help us see the truth about ourselves. So you'll notice the first phrase there, the amen. 
That means that he is worthy of my time. He's the amen. He's the last word. He's everything. Jesus is the amen to all the promises of God. He's the end result of history. Therefore, he is worthy of my time. He's also the faithful and true witness, which means he's worthy of my trust. Why? Because he's faithful. He is true. See, there are many people who talk to you who aren't faithful. There are many ideas that you can get about life which aren't true. But the only one you can count on every single time is Jesus Christ. He loves you more than anything or anybody. He loves you more than you even love yourself. He has better plans for your life than you could ever dream of. He is faithful and true. He is worthy of my trust. He is the ruler of God's creation. That means he's worthy of my worship. Why? Because he made everything. He is the creator and I am the created. Therefore, he's worthy of my praise and my worship. And so as we read these words that Jesus is going to say to us, we need to remember, he made you, he knows everything about you, he understands you. Now listen to what Jesus says about you. In these verses, Jesus makes the clearest criticism about the condition of the church. And he's going to say something about us, something about the church at Laodicea. And then he's going to share how he can provide for us, how he can help us. But realize that he is very, very clear in these verses about commitment in the church. He compares it to hot, cold, or lukewarm water. So I think the question becomes, how do I know if I've become lukewarm? How do you know if you've become lukewarm? Let me share with you three indicators, three signs that you've become spiritually stagnant. The first is if you can say, I've cooled off. You're lukewarm when you can look at yourself and say, I've cooled off. Not, I've become wiser. Not, I've slowed down. I'm not talking about changing your schedule. Don't make the mistake of thinking that that being on fire for God means that you have to be at the church every night of the week. It's your heart, not your schedule. But but if you can look internally and and you can look at your heart and say that that you've cooled off, if you can say, I used to have a, a more deeper, passionate love for God than I do right now, a lot more passion if I'm being honest, then you've cooled off. You're lukewarm. Second, you know that you've become spiritually stagnant if you can say, I've compromised. To become lukewarm is to become like the world around you. It means that that you're a room temperature Christian. It means that that whatever climate you find yourself in, whether it's at the office, whether it's out on the golf course, maybe even with your family and some of the things that you're going through, you just take on the temperature of everything that's around you. And it could be that you've made a lot of compromises and you see a lot of compromises happening in your life. The third sign is if you can say, I don't care. Where this sense of spiritual apathy has become, has started to overwhelm your life. That cup that that started so hot has begun to cool off. That cold drink has, 
has melted and the ice has melted and now it's room temperature. It's become stagnant. So how do we overcome spiritual stagnation? Well, let's go back to the text. Secondly, we need to admit your desperate need. Admit your desperate need. We read in verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Just like the church in Laodicea, we have different strategies we use to meet our desperate needs. We'll do it through riches, through the things that we acquire. We'll do it through rules, things that we require. I've done this and this and this. I've, I've kept the checklist, so that must mean that I'm spiritually alive. Or we try to meet our deepest needs through, through knowledge, how we inquire. The more that, that I inquire, the, the, the more that all my needs will be met. Or we do it through relationships, through who we desire. Or we'll even do it through achievement, how we aspire. We, we try to make it to, to the top of something. I try to excel, try, try to be the best. And, and, and I get that if I achieve, if, if I get the, the accolades, then, then I'll be enough and all my needs will be met. But deep down, you know the truth is that no matter how much we acquire and require and inquire and desire and aspire, in the end, all of us are going to expire. And so the the more that we think that it's all built on us, the more self-sufficient you and I become, the more we realize it's not enough. And it will never be enough. So what Jesus says is I need you to realize your desperate need. But it doesn't stop there. It goes beyond admitting our need. Look at verse 18. We go to Christ alone to meet our deepest needs. We take those needs and they find their fulfillment in Jesus. This is what verse 18 says. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Jesus says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. He says these things all throughout the Gospels. He says, I'm the one who meets your deepest needs. And he always frames it in terms of basic needs. In Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He gives us rest. John 7, 37, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And then in John 6, 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me will never grow hungry. The rest you need, the water you need, the food you need. Jesus isn't just talking about rest and water and food as he talks to the church in Laodicea or people throughout the Gospels. What he's saying is, is when you see me as the one who meets the basic needs of your life, you also need to see me as the one who meets the deepest needs of your life. And so he talks to the people of Laodicea about gold, about clothes, about salve, about ointment for the eyes. He's talking to them about things that they need. But why would Jesus ask this when this is a congregation that seems to think that they have everything physically that they need? Because we may have our basic needs met. 
water, food, shelter. But he's helping us to see that there are deeper needs in our life that only Jesus can meet. Fourth, look at verse 19. We need to respond as a deeply loved child. Not not as an enemy of God, that's what we once were, but we respond as someone who is deeply loved by God. Verse 19, listen to what Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Some people grew up with discipline, some people grew up with punishment. And there's a big difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment makes me want to run and hide. So how, how do I know the difference? How do you know it's not just bad things happening to you? How do you know if it's God's discipline? Well, when it's God's discipline, I don't feel guilty about it. I feel directed by it. I don't feel like God doesn't love me anymore. I feel God saying, you're here, but, but I need you to be over here. When it's discipline, it's not cloudy. The guilt that, that Satan tries to send into our lives is very cloudy. It's vague. You feel bad about your day. You feel bad about everything, bad about your life. I'm a horrible Christian. That's how Satan wants you to feel. Do you remember when you were a kid and your parents disciplined you? Maybe it was through a privilege being taken away. Maybe it was through being grounded. Did you know that you were being disciplined by your parents? Was it clear? It was very clear. And the same thing is true of God's discipline in our lives. It's crystal clear. that There are times where we have problems just because we have problems. We live in a fallen world and bad things happen. But there are other times where the crystal clear voice of God says, you need to be over here. This is where you need to be, and I am moving you in your life. And then fifth, we need to continually open the door to Jesus. Key word, continually open the door to Jesus. This is what he says in verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, we usually use this verse to talk to, to people who aren't believers. We talk to them about how Christ will come into their lives, and it's a, a good verse to talk with people who, who don't know Christ. It tells the truth of what Jesus is doing in their lives and, and how uh, he can be received into their life. But I want you to notice that when this verse was first written, it was written to the church. He's writing to the church in Laodicea. So it's written to believers, and to believers, Jesus says, look, I am standing at the door of your heart, and I am knocking. And when you hear the knock, open the door, and I will come in. So Jesus is talking to Christians whose hearts have been closed, and he's still knocking, still knocking at the door. Their hearts might have been closed to him a long time ago, or maybe it was more recently. So he's talking to them about making a commitment. You ever notice how you get done eating, and you get caught up doing some other things. And if you don't get that, that plate or that dish cleaned right away, it's, it's, it's hard to, to scrape everything off. An alternative to, to scrubbing really hard is to, to set that dish or to set that plate 
in hot water and dishwashing soap. And you let it sit there and you let it soak. And what that does is it allows a hard cleaning job to become a lot easier. And that's what abiding, that's what resting, that's what remaining does for Christians. See, we're a lot easier to clean up when we've been hanging in the right environment. Religion will tell you you got to scrape off the dirt. You just got to apply a little more elbow grease to fix the problem. You just got to to try really hard. But relationship says soak, rest, abide. Just sit in the hot water a little longer. Abiding will set you free. So today, make the most of your Christian life. Make your commitment to him firm and stable. And if you haven't, make sure that you've made a commitment to him in the local church through, through this family at Bachelor Creek. Years ago, uh, there was a family who was having some problems with their son. He was causing trouble at school. He was having a hard time at home. And so I asked if I could come over and, and visit with them. And they said yes. And so we set up a time for me to, to come over. I, I drove up to the house. It was cold. It was raining outside. I walked up to the front porch and knocked on the door. No answer. Waited a few seconds, knocked again. Lights were on in the house. I could hear people talking. I waited a little bit longer, still knocked on the door. A little bit more time passed. They opened up the door ever so slightly. They said, we're we're busy right now. You'll have to wait a little bit. I said, okay. So I'm standing out there in the cold, drizzling rain, waiting and waiting. And I waited until they finally let me in. And what Jesus is saying here is he's, he's standing at the door and he's knocking at the door of the church in Laodicea. And we don't know if they let him in or not. But what we do know is that Jesus was looking for a way to get in to a lukewarm church. And as a pastor, there, there's so much that I learn from these letters about how to, to shepherd a flock. And one of the things that I love here about Jesus is, is learning that as angry as he was with his church, as upset as he was, he loves this church. And, and he is knocking on the door to this church. He's not giving up. He wants to find his way into a stagnant, lukewarm church when many pastors would be looking for, for a way to get out of a stagnant church. Jesus is standing there knocking. Where does this idea come from? Would you believe that it comes from the Song of Solomon of all places? It's an echo of the Song of Solomon where the church says to the Lord in chapter 5, verse 2, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. This is what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. And this is what he says to us. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. The tragedy in the Song of Solomon is that the church hesitates. She doesn't rush to the door. She she doesn't welcome him and and receive him. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 6, she says, I opened for my beloved, but my my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but I did not find him. I called for him, but he did not answer. So today, if you hear Christ knocking on the door of this church, if you hear Christ knocking on the door to your family, to your heart, 
Don't delay. Don't wait. Rush to open up the door and receive him. Your beloved, your friend, your brother, the Lord, your Savior, Jesus Christ, has come to you. Let him in. The promise is when you let him in, he's not going to wreck shop. He's not going to throw a fit. He's not going to turn the house upside down. He's not going to chastise you. What what does Revelation 3 say? He says, I'm going to come in and we're going to eat together. We're going to have a meal. We're going to get our feet under the same table. And we're going to be in fellowship again. And every week we come to the table, we come to to communion with the same promise that Jesus offers the church at Laodicea. We come to the table because this is where Jesus has promised to meet us in our need. He has promised to restore fellowship with us. And so I encourage you this morning to stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like a people who are ready and waiting for their Lord to come home so that we may open the door for him at once when he comes and he knocks. Blessed are those whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them reclined at the table and he will come and he will serve them.